This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Turnip-headed wyverns. Sumerian F20. Horror of the aughts. And snow denialism. Gloomier, a night at Hemlock Hall by Atlas Games is now live on Kickstarter. Gloomier is the standalone storytelling sequel to the award-winning Gloom, with even more doom and gloom. What makes Gloomier, Gloomier? A return to the beloved original setting of Gloom's Hemlock Hall. More secrets, more revelations of the ever-so-gothic Wellington Smythe family. Clear story prompts put the focus on arsenic-drenched storytelling. Gloom fans love the guests and stories mechanics. So what does Gloomier bring you? More guests and stories! Compatible with all core Gloom games! Straight from the fiendish mind of original Gloom designer Keith Baker. Plus, the Gloomsters at Atlas Games are terribly tickled to unveil the Gloom Griefcase! <laughs> A deluxe storage case to store all your Gloom games. Plus, 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 all backers also receive the Gloom Chronicles a campaign-style mini-expansion for use with any core Gloom game. So dare to enter Hemlock Hall and see what delightful disaster awaits! Back Gloomier on Kickstarter now through April 8th. For more info, go to atlas-games.com or follow at Atlas Games on Twitter. The rattle of claws, the thump of horns, the crunch of human flesh, and the benevolent shrieking face of what are that turnip-headed wyvern thing are, welcome us once more into that most abstract of huts, the t-shirt justification hut. Abstract yet also necessary because once more, we have delved deep into public domain imagery and made a shirt out of it. And now we make a hut out of it because, Robin, we use every part of the public domain imagery. Yes, and every part of the turnip-headed wyvern. Every part of the turnip-headed wyvern. Robin, you found this particular piece of nightmare, did you not? <laughs> What's the story behind Robin on the internet, paging, no doubt, between erudite film comment sites and Canadian content light entertainment, and suddenly... This thing stares at you. What's that? How did how did that chain of links go? Well, I periodically trawl the waters of public domain in order to have images to put on shirts yeah. and also art for Pelgrane uh, website articles that don't have obvious art from the books already to correspond with it. And so sometimes I'll just type in a search term on a site that has a lot of public domain images. And this time I typed in creatures and boy, did I get some creatures. So this is a page from what you would assume is a bestiary, and uh, it's got noted mythical animals, uh, the cockatrice, the rhinoceros, and this thing in the background, which you can see by going to the site or checking out the shirt, and it looks like a, as we've been saying, and, and it's somewhat hard to say, turnip-headed wyvern. And now it turns out this is not from a bestiary, but rather from a theological book from 1776, uh, when the spirit of independence was in in the air, and a man named Francisco Maria Saldini uh, wrote The Commentary on the Souls of Animals. And uh, there are a number of illustrations that go with it, and, and this one is the zinger. So this book, uh, which I have to confess I, I have not read, was actually... <laughs> it's in eight volumes, Robin, at least, so I don't feel like you have to read it. But it was banned by the church. So the theology of what religious affiliation the turnip-headed wyvern had is apparently somewhat controversial. And so we were uh, tossing this image back and forth, trying to figure out what was going on with it. And uh, when I posted the shirt, a uh, Twitter user named Dan LK pointed out that, of course, what we've been describing as a turnip-headed wyvern is a Jenny Hanover. Uh, and a Jenny Hanover is, of course, a fake creature made out of the dried remains of a ray or skate. Because if you see the underside, uh, the, the face side 
of a ray or skate, uh, like in an aquarium, they seem kind of nice and happy. They have smiles and, and they sometimes even enjoy being petted. But when you dry them out, they look horrible, especially if you then, as you're drying them out, manipulate them to look more monstery. So for a period in the uh, Renaissance, this was all the rage thing that sailors would do uh, in order to sell them to people and to dupe the credulous. And I know this is the first time any credulous had been duped on this show by uh, ascribing them as, uh, uh, you know, devil fish or dragons or, and there, if you go online and do an image search, you can see some quite elaborate ones. I guess another question is uh, why is it called a Jenny Hanover? And I'm afraid the answer to that poses additional questions (laughs) (laughs) because supposedly it means either young person of Antwerp or young girl of Antwerp then corrupted by English speaking sailors. And I think this is not a compliment to Antwerp. (laughs) 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 So I I know Ken, you, you, uh, it was not your responsibility to, to, to look this up, but do you have any idea why the teens of Antwerp would be compared to these horrible uh, race gate monsters. I have only the the meanest possible guess as to why. I, I mean, you you can perhaps say that the youths of Antwerp, especially those in the dockyard establishments, were uh, rouged and made up and altered to appear young and untainted by dockyard activities. But when you got them up close, you realized, oh, you'd been had. You were. With a perhaps older youth of Antwerp or a youth of Antwerp with some disqualifying quality that you did not seek out in your youths of Antwerp browsing. And so maybe a youth of Antwerp is just anything with a false face, anything that has a, um, uh, a, it looks like one thing, but turns out to be something much less pleasant when you get right down to it. Who can say? Uh, again, possibly a swindler, uh, someone that's going to conk you on the head and take your. Maybe purse. let's let's go with that. That's a nice. That's nicer to the Antwerpians because it uh, makes them seem less like hideous monstrosities and more like simple grifters. So yes, <laughs> but Antwerp is a seaport. I'm sure they had all of the above. Yes, and I assume that you could go there and purchase a Jenny Hanover. So perhaps it was just like the encrypted version of like Nanaimo bar, right? <laughs> just the, the branding. So uh, the first reference to a Jenny Hanover is from uh, 1558. And even then, and this is from Conrad Gesner's Historia Animalum, which is a bestiary, uh, one assumes, and is in many volumes. He describes them and then tells you not to be a dumb jerk and fall for this trick. Right. That it's clearly not an actual monster. And they would, they would all often be sold as basilisks. That they would say, oh, you want a basilisk skin? Here you go. And they said, does that look like what a basilisk looks like? And they say, well, no one's ever lived to see a basilisk. You tell me. Yes. And that, that would explain why it's on the same page as a cockatrice. Because, yeah. of course, both of them have uh, petrifying power. And if we, run out of, if we run out of material before we run out of time, I will go on to slag the cockatrice. But, yeah, uh, but right. we'll see if yeah. we get to that. Cockatrices are problems. I do want to say that... It might be a artistic convention gone horribly wrong. I'm not going to rule out Jenny Hanover because it certainly is as hideous and god awful as a Jenny Hanover. But uh, when I was uh, looking at this image weeks ago, when you sprang it on me suddenly before I'd had my coffee, I found a image that I cannot now find that had a, a wyvern with that hideous yarling turnip head looking more like a snout and a crest and that this might be someone who had a third or fourth generation engraving to work from and said, I don't know what that horrible turnip headed blob is, but I'm going to clean it up and make it a much prettier turnip headed blob. And, and that may be where it came from. So it might just be a sloppy engraver's dragon. Right. The, the other image uh, has it as uh, one of the uh, native fauna of Tobago. Right. Yes. So it's, it's a Caribbean turnip-headed wyvern. Mm-hmm. The Jenny Hanover is associated with the sea monk, uh, which is a cryptid that uh, supposedly uh, looked like a uh, person in monk's robes that would uh, float up to your uh, ship and look all scary and horrible. Uh, but it was probably a squid, you know. Again, while we're while we're ruining all the fun, or um, uh, possibly a, uh, a a weird looking seal. Yeah, a, a seal with a hat, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, the shamans of Veracruz, the curanderos, use uh, 
things much, much like Jenny Hannifer's as uh, ritual implements. But I'm sure what our listeners really want to know is how many attacks does it have and uh, do you want to fight it? I'm going to say you don't even want to look at it, but if you do look <laughs> at it, you definitely want to fight it, assuming <laughs> your other choice is not run screaming from it. It is, it is not an attractive thing. And the fact that it's already screaming is just, it's a, that's a no go. You, you want a monster at least to enter the fight in sort of a neutral mood. Yes. And this thing has already, it's already seen pictures of itself. Maybe it just looked in a mirror and that's its reaction. It's, it's not a happy monster. Right. Although I have to say the cockatrice and the rhinoceros are like, Oh man, Herb, he's shouting again. Yeah. Not shouting Hanover again. That guy. Well, that, that implies therefore that the, uh, first of all, this clearly is like a level nine, level 10 monster. I would say this is mm-hmm. not your, your giant centipede you, uh, you meet on, at first level. I can very easily imagine him hanging out in a dungeon environment, not just, you know, with palm trees and some sort of tropical forest. And uh, you suggest that he's so horrible to look at uh, and might be related to the basilisk that uh, perhaps he has some sort of uh, fear-based appearance attack that uh, perhaps uh, slows you, gives you some penalties, uh, freaks you out, uh, possibly loses you an action, which of course is the the meanest thing an F20 monster can possibly do is to mm-hmm. take your turn away from you. Some sort of denial, uh, fear-based attack. And his big old buffety wings also look very much like he could flap them and knock you down with them. I would think that uh, in a version of F20 where falling down is a thing that you pay attention to, and of course, probably that that's like one of those things that's the most different between different editions of, of D&D, whether it matters if you're knocked over. But if you've got a, a, an F20 game where there are knockdown rules, uh, it could have a sort of a, a buffeting effect. And that could affect uh, more than one uh, character. Uh, because, of course, this also looks like the sort of solo creature that is not hanging out with a bunch of other turnip heads because they would just be screaming at each other all the time. Yeah, annoying, no, so. they, these, are, these are creatures that um, their mating season is somehow even more disturbing than their not mating season. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. Uh, it does have a long whip-like tail. So if you try to run away from it, it probably whips you with its tail. And then uh, in, in terms of, of, of you know, the, there's the shrieking attack, there's the presence attack, there's the wing buffet tail grab. Um, and also, I'll, I'll bet it just sort of topples over on you and, and, and knocks you about. Uh, it's It's got sort of a, a big uh, a doughy body that I'll bet has got some sort of monster sumo capacity to it. It's just... None of this is a good monster, Robin. This is <laughs> well. It's a good monster if you're the GM. Yeah, it's not a good GM. monster if you're the players. So no. Yeah, I think that's interesting that you he uh, might have a flop attack. You don't see mm-hmm. a lot of flop attacks. No, you don't these days. He's like, it's just the flump. But now we have yeah. the flump and the turnip headed wyvern together. Yeah. So he could he could buffet you down with his wings and then just sort of sit on you, and that would imply that he has to have better armor on his gut and chest, and that might in fact be a way that uh, he compensates from the fact that he's outnumbered by a, a, a party of adventurers. So his thing probably is to look for the biggest, toughest adventurer and then just sort of pin them and then ignore them while he blasts his, uh, his fear attack or uh, his uh, whips the others with his tail. Or, you know, I think he looks bitey also. Let's, let's not forget the classic bite attack. Yeah, I mean, you can't see his teeth, but, you know, no doubt deeper in that mouth, things get even worse. Yeah. I, I, I guess the other thing, since to honor his potential Jenny Hanaverness, we could say that he's like the owlbear. He's built by a wizard. Uh, he's a construct <laughs> monster. And the monster and the wizard had, you know, like a regular attractive wyvern and said, it's not gross enough and sort of stretched it and messed with it and then animated it with some sort of fell I, sorcery. I do have this rotten turnip. That right? I, and a rotten turnip. I could use that. Yeah. This is like, you know, the, the worst. This is the other side of Cinderella's coach, right? Is, you know, if Cinderella, instead of having lovely Disney mice, had a hideous gecko to work with and, and made uh, her, her ride to the, the prom out of this thing. And so the notion that it's a magical construct means that that turnip head could be hollow and just hold like a demon that drives it. Or it could have like a big glowing ball in it that just sort of shoots magic missiles or, or something at you. I feel like that's even worse than just biting it. straight from construct 
to Mecca now. Well, you know, Construct to Mecca is just a Colossus of Yalorn away, Robin, as I've so often said. So the last thing I guess we need is that it does not have a scary enough name yet because Jenny Hanover is just cute. It just sounds charming unless you've been to Antwerp. Right. And Turnip-Headed Wyvern. Hard to say. Somewhat mocking. <laughs> Uh, you might think yeah. before you see it anyway, oh, it's the turnip head, and then you might be scared. But I think we need some sort of uh, a shrieker must surely be taken. This is Shriekers, I mean. Shrieker is those mushrooms that used to do that. Right. I mean, you could call it like a shrieker wyvern or a shrieking rip wyvern. A shrieking wyvern sounds good. Yep. Yeah. Or, you know, you could call it a, I guess the, there, there's no really great scary way to say uh, a flop and crush. No. That's, uh, that's back into funny. So I guess shrieking wyvern. It's about as good as we're going to be able to get. And the cockatrice can breathe a sigh of relief because we've run out of time. So I don't have time to bag on what a dumb to, monster to that is on the cockatrice. Yep. And, uh, so the, I don't know. Maybe someone will ask what my opinion of the cockatrice is, but I don't know if I have 15 minutes on that. Uh, at any rate, I think we have another commercial and another segment on the other side. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21. That's CROWN21 to save... 15%. At PelgrainPress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, Mighty Feud! Patreon backer Mike Merles asks Ken and Robin, or mostly asks Ken, uh, I'm considering running an F20 game set in Ancient Sumer. What are the key sources I should start with for research, and what would you see as the key setting elements to highlight to make it feel distinct from the typical Western European slash Tolkien playground that most F20 games use? Can take it away. I have one book that I have used very often in at, at the drop of a hat, really, which is a, a terrific reference book. It's by Anthony Green and Jeremy Black, and it's called Gods, Demons, and Symbols of Ancient Mesopotamia. And I would snaffle up a copy of that however you could not from me. And that will give you your sort of uh, monster manual to jump from. And then there's a book called The Sumerians, written by a fellow named Samuel Noah Kramer. He wrote it back in the 60s. So the archaeology is probably not au courant anymore, but it was a soup to nuts. Here's everything we know about the Sumerians circa 1965. And it's got lots of attention to religion, cultural mores, basically everything that they could find out. And the Sumerians, of course, left a lot of records behind. And so there was a lot of material for people like Samuel Noah Kramer to sift. About 20 years after that, I think, a guy named Georges Roux wrote a book called Ancient Iraq, which was a sort of generalized history of the period, going all the way back to the earliest cities in Mesopotamia and up, I think, to the fall of Babylon to the Persians. And so Roux's book, The Relevant Chapters, uh, will probably give you a good overview. Although if you already have said Sumer is what I want, then you won't need the rest of those chapters. I don't own this book, but when I was trolling around seeing if there was a better book than Samuel Noah Kramer and discovering to my shock that there did not seem to be, uh, there's a book by an author, archaeologist, I assume named Gwendolyn Like, L-E-I-C-K, called Mesopotamia, the Invention of the City, which takes as its narrative descriptions of a series of cities going forward in time. And so it begins with like five different Sumerian cities in sequence as they became top dogs and the depth of its of its coverage can be determined by the fact that Ur I think is chapter 5 so we're not even out of Sumer yet 
uh, by chapter five of this book. So I think that I would probably, if I were running this game, I would buy that book and then use Kramer as my backstop because it's faster to read one chapter than it is a big, thick book on the Sumerians. Those are sort of, you know, just jumping right in uh, with both feet, the, the sort of the resources that I would immediately gather. Then there's various, you know, everyday life in Sumeria or everyday life in ancient Mesopotamia type books that you can, you know, look over and decide if they're contributing anything that Kramer doesn't uh, make your own decisions. But uh, I think with those three books or four, if you count George Rue, that would be a pretty good starting gun for running a Sumerian campaign. Uh, so that brings us to the next question is what will it be about Sumer that will make it feel different to the uh, players? So certainly, you know, uh, they might well have Lamassu problems. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got a, a different assortment of uh, mythical creatures, uh, some of whom uh, might be just flat out monsters that you want to uh, fight and kill, but other ones are uh, possibly intelligent and sort of quasi benevolent. They might be just as uh, sort of hit or miss as to whether they're helping you or in your way as, as various humans are, but what sort of uh, level of uh, freedom are characters going to have, or rather what social status do they have to have in order to have the freedom of heroes? Well, if they're going to be people who are from a Sumerian city, they're basically going to have to work for one of the temples and work at a fairly high level. So they would be maybe people who go out and survey the canals to make sure that they're still flowing or that they go out and um, patrol the borders against rival cities so they could be like a military patrol or they're astrologers and they have to go out and study the stars from different angles to learn what the future is going to be. So some sort of middle management type from the temple is pretty much the only people with freedom of action in a Sumerian city. Sumeria was no one's idea of a uh, constitutional paradise. It was pretty much an anthill. The, the cities were run by kings. Sometimes the kings fought with priests. More often, the king was just one specific lineage of priest. He had his own job to placate the tutelary deity of the city specifically, and the other priests took care of the heavens and, and other stuff. And so you don't actually have an awful lot of social mobility or freedom of action because everyone's life is pretty much controlled by, if not directly run by the various temples. You could, of course, play one of the people who live in the dwindling marshes or hills on the outside of Sumer who come in to trade hides or wood or precious stones or anything that is not grain. Uh, that being pretty much the only thing that the Mesopotamian plain can produce. And naphtha, of course, there's bubbly naphtha that comes up out of the soil in a couple of places. But if you're bringing anything else the city needs, you're bringing it from outside. So you might be someone who's got some sort of license. And I think you would be maybe extending the metaphor to assume that this sort of thing happened super regularly to be licensed, but maybe not. And so you're a hill tribesman or a hill warrior from Elam or a marsh fisherman who's uh, canny with boats or whatever. And so you get to go into the city and not be immediately enslaved to work on the canals because you've got a chit, um, but you're not part of the social structure. And so you can look at it from the outside. That might be another good possibility in terms of player character choices. It does kind of suggest, though, that you are mostly out in the wilderness finding things that you can go into the city and sell. Yeah. Which is not as different from standard F20 is if you are the troubleshooters for a temple mm -hmm. and that sort of changes the uh, kind of moral oppositional dimension of F20 to rather than being a fight of good versus evil, it's a fight of your deity and your city against all of the other cities. And that is more Sumerian. Obviously, if you want to be um, embedded in Sumerian culture, you do want to, want to maybe a strong word, but you should be working for a temple. You should be part of that society, a cog in that system. And then the fun happens because that's basically all there is. There's city. So you are running around in your city, preventing bad thoughts and demons. You are exploring other cities, either with permission as a diplomat, 
or traitor. Not, uh, there was again, not that big a difference. Um, or as a spy, which is fun and exciting and figuring out what other cities have got in terms of technology and technology, of course, would be superior demon controlling charms. Uh, the other thing is that the religious world of Sumer is much more arbitrary and has many more intermediary spirits than the sort of, uh, Tolkien-y F20 standard world is. Um, you've got your, you've got your pantheon, absolutely, that you, uh, believe in very strongly, but there's an awful lot of demons and spirits that are still out there wandering around and you have to buy them off or placate them or show them your, you know, your pass card that you've got that says, you don't attack me, go attack Lars or whatever, uh, in the next, uh, city over. And so there's going to be, as you suggested, a lot of dickering with various demons in addition to just trying to stab them with your crummy copper and perhaps bronze, if you're late enough in the period, sword. Although mostly you'll be using fire-hardened sticks with a metal cladding on the end, uh, because right. that is what they used. But but I'm sure what the, the attentive F-20 uh, GM would then scale up all of the weapons, because you don't want to go, oh, well, we've gone so back far in history that realistically every weapon damage is d2 because mm-hmm. that utterly screws the uh the balance the arithmetic <laughs> right, yeah. of the game and so you might want you know in in sumer you know this fire hardened stick is it does 1d8 damage or yeah, it's, it does whatever. standard spear damage or or yeah. at least javelin damage and then you can in theory have iron weapons as heavy and clumsy but they do a lot of damage if you can wield them correctly and those can be sort of uh your magic items that are you know have you have to go way up north uh to the hills to get them not the regular close by hills in Elam all the ones way up in in Turkey in Anatolia dicker with the with the Hivites and the Hurrians and the Hittites uh to get yourself a magic star iron sword and that can be sort of your your little reward item but the the technology that you have with your laced armor which is better than the not at all armor that everybody else has you are king of your little mud patch and as dire as it sounds, the most technologically advanced civilization in the world when you're a Sumerian. And I feel like that degree of sort of you against the world should also be part of it because, of course, Sumerian is an isolate language. It's not a a Semitic language. What happened was the Semitic language of Akkadian borrowed a lot of Sumerian terms because the Akkadians rolled over the Sumerians and sort of took all their stuff, including a lot of their, their language forms. But the Sumerians, we don't necessarily know what the story is with them, how they felt about their neighbors. We know that they fought them a lot, but again, that might've been because they were always sending, uh, you know, parties of warriors out to grab, you know, grass and wood and precious gems for free instead of paying for them with nice grain. So who can say, but if you I have F 20 characters working for your t- temple, you're going to send them out at getting into trouble that can cause all sorts of warfare. Exactly. And that can be another thing is that you have to, because the, the, the world is this, you know, dozen or 20 cities, each with its own role in the uh, diplomatic world and the cosmos, you have to sort of be a little more careful about what you do uh, when you're in the next city over, especially if it's the big mean city uh, that can plausibly come and, and kick your teeth down your throat. And so those sorts of considerations that the world is politics, both the politics of the gods and the politics of the temples is, I think, maybe a little more freight than the average F20 game takes on, which is why I suggested at the top of this, you might just play Elamite Hill Folk. So this sort of implies also that if you're the temple troubleshooters, that your the powers, the ability to go up levels that separate you from uh, most of the people in the world and make you extraordinary, uh, surely come from your temple god. Yeah. And uh, that uh, possibly also explains why you can have, you know, an armor class that goes above uh, lace. And that then <laughs> begins to bring us into uh, RuneQuest territory, as does the fact that you're going to be dickering with spirits all the time. So something that you might want to pick up and see how much you can borrow from is uh, 13th Age in Glorantha, which shows you how to adapt the ancient world of uh, Glorantha to F20. And I bet there's a bunch of stuff in there that you could uh, start to steal, even though the overall setting is not especially Sumerian. No, not least because Greg had probably my same opinion of a Sumer as a society to emulate, which is don't. So, Ken, I think it's time for us to, uh, you know, head over to our temples and, and refresh 
our uh, armor class because we've had a long slog. We've got a long battle. We're in stage 14 of a battle that we're going to enter into on the other side of this commercial. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Be an Enkidu, not an Enkidon't, by supporting this podcast alongside such epic Patreon backers as... Eric Jefferson, Mark Baskerville. Jesse Lowe. Tom Abella. And Dan O'Hanlon. Once more, the projector beam stabs out. Once more, the reels rattle through the projector. Once more... We don't want to know what we walked over on our way to the center seats in the center aisle of the Cinema Hut, because once more, Robin and I, you are not, we're settling in for the Horror Film Festival, the Horror Film Essentials Festival, in fact, and we have finally, finally, Robin, we've gotten to the year 2000. We've changed the first number on the calendar. We're, we're in ready this to go. century, finally. We, well, you can bicker and argue about that, certainly, but we can certainly say that Films now are sort of beginning to take on not just the knowing ironic tone of the 80s, but they are beginning to once more get their legs under them in terms of a direct style. And so they're borrowing both that sort of auteur look from the 80s and 90s, and then they're moving off. I want to say in in kind of different directions that you're beginning to see a fissioning of the horror ecosystem, not least because so many of the films now are coming not from Hollywood, that they're coming from Asia. And that we will get to just as soon as we talk about a movie about an American monster, American Psycho by Mary Heron. Yeah, so this is a brilliant, satirical, serial killer film based on, and I think significantly improving, the Brett Easton Ellis novel because it's about a Wall Street bro who uh, extends the metaphor of capitalism by killing people in his spare time. Christian Bale's a most chilling and funniest performance. And the ironic distance of uh, being outside of his head, as you are not in the Bret Easton Ellis novel, I think makes it uh, the whole point of the novel is that it's a hideous slog. And like <laughs> most people, I haven't finished it because you get the point long before you finish it. Uh, but the novel brings a useful feminist perspective to the text. And uh, I don't know how, if this is the scariest uh, film on our list, but it's certainly uh, deep in conversation, uh, not just with horror comedy, but with uh, social satire. Yeah. And also it's uh, really kind of an actor's showcase, not just Christian Bale doing a terrific job fairly early in his career, but Willem Dafoe uh, and er very early Jared Leto, Chloe Sevigny at what turned out to be one of the peaks of her career. And uh, it's got a lot of really great meaty parts. It's not just a, a showcase for Christian Bale, although that is what a lot of people remember. And it is, um, I think after Ghostbusters, one of the most endlessly quotable movies on our list. It's got a really snappy, good bunch of dialogue and a good script. So American Psycho, as you say, sort of straddling the border of social commentary, satire film and horror, but still an effective serial killer movie for all of that. And therefore on our list. Now a movie that you showed me, Robin. This is, we are now in the beginnings of the Ken and Robin origin story as we get to. <laughs> yes, we're now f- far enough into the narrative that we know each other. <laughs> yep. And so this is uh, 
Uh, this isn't the first Canadian film on the list because, of course, I've had a lot of Cronenberg films. But this is Ginger Snaps by uh, directed by John Fawcett and co-written by Karen Walton. And this is, I think, one of the things that's happening here is that directors are now young enough to have been influenced by the first wave of horror auteurs. And so they are not only engaging with uh, classic horror, but with the films of Carpenter and Cronenberg. And, and in this case, case uh, John Landis. <laughs> uh, John Landis and uh, Joe Dante. And so uh, Ginger Snaps, uh, or the character is named Ginger. In the course of it, she snaps. <laughs> and uh, this is a high school lycanthropy movie. It uh, has... A, uh, a sort of a light ironic tone that is definitely in the the, the Dante Landis uh, camp, but again, it brings a feminist uh, perspective, and it's a great high school movie. It's uh, got a real relationship between Ginger and her sister that are, that is at the heart of it. Uh, Mimi Rogers uh, does a great little turn as that sort of clued out uh, sweet natured mom, and so we're now far enough into it that movies in the two thousands are influenced by the eighties. Yeah. And it's terrific. Everything you say about it is correct. The the family uh, relationship at the center of it is really strong and, and believable and good and well done. It does that great tone shifting thing that I like a lot of these movies uh, from this era do that. It starts as sort of a, a light acerbic comedy and then at the bottom drops out. It does become genuinely not just scary, but also a little bit chilling, a little bit. Oh, yeah, this is a serious problem. I believe in this condition and I don't see a good way out for our heroines. And this could be a bad situation. It's it's very good and surprisingly compelling. Uh, like a werewolf, bites down hard, doesn't let you go. Very fond of it. Yeah, and, and as we've discussed, it is hard to do a good werewolf movie because the protagonist and the antagonist are the same. So this is why it works to have a sister character, to have a dramatic uh, conflict. And another question about werewolf movies is, does it let the character off the hook? And that's uh, something, since this is probably one of the lesser known ones we've mentioned, I'll let uh, viewers... Uh, figure out for themselves. We tease the fact that we're going to dive deep into J-horror, and so that brings us also in the year 2000 to Uzumaki by Higuchinsky, uh, which is the nom de film of uh, the director, and this is an adaptation of a manga by Junji Ito. It is, uh, like a lot of J-horror, is uh, very much reality horror. It's about uh, shifting reality, uh, and this is uh, also has a lot of body horror and strange effects, and also, of course, a snail horror. Uh, so, Ken, I want to know if Darcy slipped you some money to plug this one. Darcy did not slip me any money. I don't think Darcy has seen this. I think this may have been one of the ones I was saving to spring on her. I'll, I'll, I'll try it again. We'll see what happens. But yeah, this is a movie that I fell in love with when I watched it for the first time because it is so much better than other movies at the uncanny at the thing that seems like it should make sense. And then it like a snail spirals into making no damn sense. It uh, very much, you know, we talk about movies like peeping Tom that implicate the viewer and the crimes of the film with this movie, trying to make sense out of this movie enmeshes you in this movie's <laughs> nonsense. As you look for pattern, you are following the path of all the other characters that are driving themselves literally insane by looking for pattern. The spirals repeat throughout the film in a lot of very clever ways, including camera usage. There's a bravura shot that literally spirals around into the inside of a car and then turns around to look out, but there's spiral wipes, spiral cuts. This is like, um, you know, Howard Hawks putting X's in Scarface level. Just once you start looking for spirals in Uzumaki, you'll never stop. And it is also great because when Higuchinsky made the movie, Junji Ito hadn't finished writing the manga, so we didn't know how it ended. So it has no closure, which is terrific. I love that about a horror movie that it says, yeah, this is terrifying and it's happening in this one little town in Japan, but we think maybe that that thing is spreading. Oh, well, guess we'll never know. Da, 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 da. I love Uzumaki. I love the, the, the sensation that you get from watching it and engaging with it. And I love that it doesn't apologize for anything that Higuchinsky has his vision of Ito's vision. He brings it and he just, as far as I'm concerned, this movie does everything it needs to and literally backwards and spiraling like a snail shell. It's very, very good and very, very effective at what it wants to do. And it wants to do something that virtually no other horror movie tends to want to do, which is another thing that I like, the creativity of it. 
is much higher than even very, very good vampire or zombie or whatever kind of movies that we've seen a million of. Uh, another uh, J-horror that I like, I think maybe better than other J-horror commentators, is Cairo. It's another film by Kyushi Kurosawa, translated as Pulse often. And this is a film that had a very, very mediocre American remake with Kristen Bell. So, of course, I watched it and was, well, that was not a very good movie, but I see parts of it. And then I went and saw Cairo and said, oh, that's what they were doing. And literally takes the skeleton of urban, not legendary, urban demonology, the notion that once more there is a, a a interface using technology between our world and the world of the dead, that those dead influences are now spreading out through our technology. There is sort of a folk horror approach to it as well. And it also, like a lot of very good J-horror, begins locally and expands to apocalypticism uh, in, in a very good way. And I think that the elements of Cairo... Uh, a lot of people, I guess, don't think that they, that they work, you know, as a, as a unified whole. To me, that's part of the victory that Kurosawa is, is saying that you don't understand what's happening. Much like Uzumaki, that's what I like about it is that it is deliberately ragged around the edges. Those people are fools. Pulse is a masterpiece. Yep. As you suggest, it takes Kurosawa's uh, sort of a low rent industrial, real grotty settings and fuses that, uh, with the technological horror uh, of the ring and then expands it out into apocalypse. There's one sequence uh, with a dancing ghost and that's all the ghost is doing is dancing. And it is one of the scariest things in all of horror cinema. And I uh, am going to blow a little detail from the end of the film, but it's not a plot point. Uh, so uh, as we've suggested, this is an apocalyptic film and, and you sort of see in the background near the end, a uh, passenger jetliner, a smash into a building. I saw this film at a press screening before the Toronto International Film Festival on September 9th, 2001. And huh. that was before, of course, the festival got canceled for a day in the middle uh, after 9-11. So this, uh, in a way, in, and I, everybody else who saw this film saw it after 9-11. And this is, I think, another part of its reverberation into the world is that it is a precursor of how uh, that event is going to begin to uh, filter into horror, in this case, presciently, but unknowingly. The next title is one that I'll be describing, because Ken's not a fan. Uh, this is The Devil's Backbone, uh, Guillermo del Toro from 2001. Uh, it is a ghost story set in an orphanage in the dying days of the Spanish Civil War. I think it is a beguiling and evocative uh, film that uh, fuses uh, horror and history. It's got a a young boy protagonist and manages to avoid a lot of the uh, pitfalls of that. If there's a genre where it's okay to have a lead character without agency, that would be the uh, horror film. And uh, uh, Del Toro, uh, even for me, blows hot and cold. He needs a really crisp, coherent script to work within. And uh, he really uh, has it in this case. And uh, the actors, Marissa Paradis and Eduardo Noriega are also very um, memorable. So it's a great, to be able to see those uh, top Spanish actors in a horror film that we can mention. Um, I saw Devil's Backbone, and I was, uh, as you say, I believe that Del Toro blows hot and cold, and that is the nicest thing you can say about him. The first 45 minutes had me. I thought, this is a terrific ghost story. This is a great uh, movie. He's making a movie without his over-reliance on uh, sort of a uh, rich, colorful uh, misdirection and, and driving something that, you know, sort of sinks into the palette of a place. I was very fond of that. And then the ghost story ended 45 minutes in and we had the rest of the movie, which I could predict basically everything that happened and was far less invested in than I was the ghost story. So that's my thoughts on The Devil's Backbone. Oh, well, Ken, it sounds like you have a, a grudge <laughs> against Guillermo del Toro, so you better describe another film. One, one could say that. Um, and if I could lure Guillermo del Toro into a house, well, I probably wouldn't kill him because he's a terrific horror <laughs> guy. A bit of an overreaction. I'm sure we'd get along. But if I were a dead Japanese Ken, I absolutely would kill him by luring him into a house because that's the story of Juwan the Grudge by Takashi Shimizu, a movie where the American remake falls, I think, between the remake of The Ring and the remake of Pulse in that it is fun and acceptable, but n by no means the, the stellar achievement that uh, the original The Grudge is. The Grudge is just... Pure Haunted House. It is a one of the great Haunted House movies and has the great advantage for me of being a ghost movie with 
the J-horror moral agency question, which is, oh, you took a wrong step. You're screwed. It's uh, very noir in that uh, level. It's not the sort of American, but but that's a nice lady. Nothing bad can happen to a nice lady thing that we see in a, in a lot of movies. Not in The Grudge. Oh, my goodness, no. It's beautifully shot in the sense that you know where you are at every moment in the house, which is not something that everyone always does. Robert Wise famously deliberately messed up the geography of uh, The Haunting. Kubrick did the same thing with The Shining. But uh, in The Grudge, Shimizu is is so happy the way that he's set up every single vista inside that house that you you could map it in your head as you are, of course, falling victim to it. It's, you know, I don't know that it, that it has as big a thing to say as, as Cairo or Uzumaki, but it, it says, uh, don't mess with a ghost house. And it says it really well. And the fascinating thing about it is that the house is not a big Gothic house in a hill, but it's an ordinary house in a regular yeah. neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that intensifies the horror. And part of it is the sheer irrationality of the ghost manifestation is shown through complete breakdown of narrative in that there's no conventional character who leads you through these experiences, but it's just one weird, crazy thing after another, all held together, not by a character or a, a, a story arc per se, but just a bunch of things happening in this house and they just won't stop happening. And you, the viewer, uh, survive longer than the characters and yeah. are still stuck in that house. And uh, that's from 2002. And also in 2002, we begin to see 9-11 literally or, you know, quasi-literally in a thin layer of metaphor, begin to appear in horror films with 28 Days Later by Danny Boyle and the uh, beginning scenes of this film, which revived the uh, zombie genre, gave it the immediacy of what was then the rough-and-ready digital video, so it looks crude and blown out and therefore real, like news footage. The opening sequence where Killian Murphy wakes up alone in an abandoned city and then walks past all of the the makeshift memorials uh, that people have pinned up to walls is in and of itself uh, perhaps one of the uh, scariest moments in cinema. But like a lot of horror films that start strong, it doesn't lose itself entirely. It does become more of a conventional zombie film as it uh, goes along, but it doesn't utterly fall apart after its brilliant beginning. And it does uh, introduce, or at least popularize, the fast zombie, which gives it a sort of a visceral action thriller post-born or circa-born quality that I think a lot of zombie movies haven't had, that there is a degree to which um, you are seeing the action thriller infuse into horror, and it's uh, obviously going to be much uh, stronger in, in much worse films. But in 28 Days Later, I think Danny Boyle sort of exactly tinctures the level of adrenaline and and running around with the level of running away that you want in a good zombie movie. I, I, I feel like 28 Days Later is so beautiful and strong visually that you sort of forget that it's also a remarkable job of rhythmically cutting shorter and shorter and shorter scenes to sort of build that perfect horror tension, even though in theory, the scenes, some of them are, are, you know, downtime, relaxed beats, sorts of scenes, but they keep getting shorter. And so we are moving towards a, a climax, whether we know it or not. And also the score by John Murphy is one of the uh, instant classic horror scores. It's sort of a, a kind of ambient drone guitar and it uh, is uh, so inescapable that it was immediately uh, ripped off and sometimes even just flat out needle dropped into other movies. Uh, and it's a, also a huge sort of subliminal part of uh, why that film works. So to end this segment, uh, we're still just closing out the very beginning of the end of the end of the beginning of the, uh, of the aughts. And so we're not getting very far because there's so many films bunched up together at this point. But another film from 2002, we weren't sure whether this is an out and out all time horror essential, but it's definitely a Ken and Robin horror essential. And that is uh, Mothman Properties directed by uh, Mark Pellington in 2002. And this has a Richard Gere as a sort of John Keel figure on the track of the legendary Mothman, which uh, sort of without quite coming out and saying it really drops you into John Keel's very disturbing view of the paranormal uh, universe. And it's all about mood and synchronicity and uh, weird things happening. And what finally does happen doesn't seem to have much to do with humanoid moth, but it's uh, remarkably effective 
a serious-minded horror film. I mean, it's so John Keel that there are two characters that are John Keel. There's Richard Gere is John Klein, and then there's another character, Alexander Leake, who is the sort of uh, weird paranormalist who gets to drop exposition and be terrified and be drawn into the excitement. It's very, very effective in terms of the of, of the editing, the, the the shot composition. If you watch it, it's almost all in this sort of funereal blue palette, except every now and again, there'll be just a little shot of red to mess with you. Uh, so it, it, you know, it's uh sixth sense, I think before the sixth sense, it's uh, got a lot of stuff going on. It's got a really good uh, score by Tom and Andy that works uh, super well. Again, that sort of ambient uh, under your, uh, under your muscles uh, music. Laura Linney does a, a terrific role as the human being who is trying to connect the increasingly insane John Keels to actual life in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And you have the sort of really, truly unknowability that is the core of John Keel style horror. And uh, Mark Pellington, of course, has already made a, a great paranoia film with Arlington Road. And then this is another great paranoia film. But it's even greater because the paranoia comes from something you literally can't understand, much less fight back against. And uh, the notion of, of psychic tension, I think, is... It, it's not better in, in, in many other movies. Sheila saw this movie with me for reasons and was amazed at how much, how well she liked it. Said she loves horror, but not a big fan of Richard Gere. So if you are skeptical because it has sort of a Hollywoody, uh, sheen to it, don't be. It really, really works as a horror film and it is truer to what I think encounter experiencing is than most UFO movies are. Yes. You just dropped into a sort of a well of uh, irrationality and things that shouldn't be related to each other uh, suddenly are. Well, we still have another film from 2002 to get to next week because our horror essentials series will continue. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing the sense of creeping paranoia the corkboard up on the wall the red threads that connect all of the things on the corkboard, the bits and pieces of paper that we have taken from posts and that we found lying on the ground and that we have put up on the corkboard, and also internet postings, because we are finding patterns where none exist, and where no patterns exist, we find ourselves in the conspiracy corner. And uh, can this time around, recent events... Uh, recent nonsense events inspire this segment. So it turns out that if you live in a place that doesn't get a lot of snow, as uh, uh, Texas is and as uh, the U.S. South uh, is, and they suddenly get a lot of snow, some people will be surprised by the physical properties of snow. And if those people are conspiracy-minded and have a TikTok account, they will take a snowball, they will take it into the sink, and while uh, describing the things that Bill Gates is doing to us, we'll take a lighter, put it under the snowball, and because water doesn't drip from the snowball onto your lighter, but instead the snowball becomes steadily smaller, 
And there's a scorch mark on the snowball, which, a spoiler, is from the butane of your lighter. But wait a minute, that can't be true. It must be, Ken, a conspiracy. It must be. It must be that the snow is faked. It's faked by Bill Gates or by the government or by the globalists, those guys. Who can say it, uh, as you say, it recently exploded in Texas during the uh, freak uh, snowstorm and uh, windstorm that knocked power out in Texas for so long. It previously emerged in Atlanta during a bad snowstorm uh, for Atlanta, two inches. It was not a bad snowstorm uh, in 2014. And the same effect happened that people would, this was before TikTok. So they had to go on YouTube, like, like old people and uh, show you that snow didn't melt. At that point, patient scientists were saying, you know, that snow is not ice, right? You know, that it's got air in it. And that's why when you throw it at somebody, it bursts apart in a fun spray of snow. Oh, right. You're from Georgia. Of course, you don't know any of those things. And, and so the, the, the snow isn't real. The snow is uh, spread there full of deadly chemicals to mess with us is a uh, it's a robust meme and it descends. Uh, certainly in 2014, people were explicitly connecting it to the chemtrail mythology, which is that those long contrails you see hanging in the sky for a great long time aren't merely because the sky is cold and airplane exhaust accumulates uh, ice particles around it. Nope, it's because the bad people are dumping chemicals on us with the contrails and that they're planning to turn us all into sheeple or whatever it is that bad people have their plans are. Chemtrails begin uh, as a thing in uh, 1996. That seems to be their sort of moment. It's the moment at which the Air Force publishes a report on sort of contrail physics and, and what that's like and uh, speculates on using that for, I think, mostly spotting, you know, enemy planes or whatnot. But the Air Force reporting on contrails suddenly becomes a big deal. People seize on it and say, actually, these are chemtrails. And that pattern recapitulates itself from earlier when in uh, 1968, a fellow named Gordon J.F. McDonald wrote a paper called How to Wreck the Environment. And he wrote that as uh, theories of militarized climate change, that you could seed clouds to make it rain, you could trigger uh, hurricanes with lasers, you could do all manner of other things to create bad weather events and uh, mess up other countries with them. Right. It turns out you can just sit back and let humans wreck the environment. Right. Um, well, this was something that Gordon J.F. McDonald was also uh, very concerned with. He was a very early uh, worrier about human-induced uh, climate change and uh, specifically uh, hydrocarbon-induced global warming. He had a lot of uh, very uh, early worries on that topic. He worked on the National Science Foundation's Advisory Panel on Weather Modification from 1964 to 1967. He also designed the McNamara line of electronic sensors that ran across the Ho Chi Minh uh, Trail and uh, won the war. If you remember, science won the war. Oh, no, that's right. It just distracted everyone, cost a zillion dollars and did nothing. That's what he did. But what it also does when Gordon J.F. McDonald writes How to Wreck the Environment, it seeds, almost like it was a chemtrail, uh, these concepts into the conspiratorial-minded set. So by 1970, UN weather manipulation has begun turning up in anti-Semitic conspiracy rags. And I shan't name the conspiracy rags, but you can find them on the internet if you're, if that's your job. And so what seems to be the pattern, at least this last 50 years or so, has been the government says something in sort of blithering innocence about, uh, wouldn't this be cool if, and people who have got, I would say, not necessarily no reason to distrust the government, uh, say, well, if they're telling us that, the real truth must be even worse and somehow involve the Rothschild family. And so I don't remember. Uh, it was, I think, one of the QAnons or, or some weirdo fringe person was uh, talking about how the, the Jews were making it snow. This was during lockdown madness when we were all talking crazy. And uh, this, I think, is the, the current descent of that 1970 UN weather manipulation that got seeded into that uh, ecosystem. And again, it got seeded by Gordon J.F. McDonald saying, wouldn't be the worst thing to change the weather to mess with foreign countries that we don't like. We could do that. And that same sort of paranoia spreads out. You, you see, for example, um, Iran blamed the, the earthquake at bomb on, uh, us sonic weaponry. Uh, you saw the same paranoia about the harp, uh, ionospheric research station in Alaska that was supposedly also altering global weather patterns by electricity. It, 
And the, the same sort of, if something's happening somewhere that we don't understand, it's making a thing happen that we don't like. And that, of course, is what's happening anyway. We, things we don't right. understand are making things happen that we don't like. And the natural human response is to personalize that threat. And this, of course, goes all the way back to blaming witches for a bad year at the crops. And if the crops are super bad, you've got to, you know, hunt down some witches and uh, give them what for. And that is, you know, not a technological response to bad weather. Um, it is, in fact, just the human response. And uh, the fact that uh, the witch trials hit their peak as the Little Ice Age was also hitting its peak is maybe not a coincidence, he said. Right. It would be interesting to find out because some cultures are witch cultures that blame misfortunes on the actions of hidden sorcerers within your own society or uh, perhaps the sorcerers on the other side of the hill and the other tribe, but more often within your own society yeah, because right. they're easier to catch and set on fire uh, if they're uh, your neighbor. There, there are societies that, that do that, and then there are other societies that don't attribute bad events to the actions of magical people within. It would be interesting to find out if anyone has done research on whether the modern manifestation of that, the conspiracy theory, is different in cultures that have had witch belief and cultures that haven't. Uh, clearly, the Anglo-American experience uh, were a witch culture, and uh, people are still looking for witches. And when it snows, they're looking for a sense that their pre-existing set of paranoid beliefs are again being reinforced, because once you that's what you do with paranoid beliefs. You look for novel ways to prove them with the objects that you have lying around the house, or in this case, that have fallen on your uh, lawn. So the question is, how to incorporate uh, something like this into your uh, fictional scenarios and stories without replicating the anti-Semitic paranoia of the people who are super enthusiastic about uh, weather control. So I think one way to do that is to have the people trying to set fire to their snowballs show up as a symptom of some sort of psychic disturbance that you are uh, exploring. And so uh, the idea is not that the monsters are bringing the terrible weather and certainly the monsters aren't in league with Bill Gates and they're not uh, <laughs> responsible for, for vaccines. But The monsters got sick of Vista just like the rest of us did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're, they're definitely not. Now, if they have some money to spend, they might be uh, Mac enthusiasts yeah. who, in their non-monstering time will respond to tech requests about Windows and say, you should get a Mac because yes. there's no more <laughs> monstrous behavior that's than that. That's the Mac. true monsters, the people who hang out on message ports. <laughs> yes. Um, and certainly, the again, uh, we're definitely in esoteric territory with anything like this where a local esoteric cell can notice that knuckleheads are going on the internet to say that snow isn't real and then come up with some way to uh, magnify that outburst of psychic energy and then channel it into... Uh, some other direction. So it's not that the monsters are causing the weather phenomena paranoia, but that the weather phenomena paranoia then creates the environment in which monsters can move in and, and uh, make things worse and exploit the uh, paranoia rather than mean that the paranoia is correct. Yeah. And you can also play with the notion of, because snow isn't real is a pretty strong statement. I think we would agree here. <laughs> You're going out of a limb. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as a Canadian and a Chicago one, I feel like snow is one of the only real things. I've, I've often told myself that the snow isn't real, but right. it turns out to be real. That the snow doesn't mean I have to leave the house. Um, that's for sure. And, and so the notion of snow not being real, I think, is a powerful card to keep in your reality horror deck. The notion that without involving the Rothschilds or Bill Gates... Snow not being real could be a symptom of some sort of reality shift, that the snow is Carcosan snow, and so it does burn differently than regular snow or have a different effect than regular snow, or the snow is snow fallen from Yuggoth somehow through a, 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 a space gate, or that the Wendigo brought this weird magic snow with him uh, when he came south uh, with Athakwa. Um, I think the notion of snow not being snow is such a, a, a visceral symbol that it should be possible to take it and use it as a spore of a fictional monster. And, and so I guess in that way, you know, play a little closer to the, to the edge there. But again, um, if you're using paranoia and conspiracy in your games at all, 
this is this is an edge you are familiar with. You've probably got a, a guide rail and a and some reflectors on it. So it, it it should be possible to take something as as strangifying and and on its surface nonsensical as this snow isn't snow and have your characters be the only people who understand that no this is this is a thakwa snow this is not regular snow and it is scary and weird and different and look it does behave differently and we're going to go on TikTok and show you and then have other characters say ooh I hate to see it yeah and uh, <laughs> and you can definitely have your conspiracy theorist you know, the secret of, of the unreal snow and you have to go, oh, we're going to go talk to them, but mm-hmm. are they going to be weirdos? And you find out, oh yeah, they're weirdos, but they have this, uh, as classic red herrings do, they just happen to have this other piece of information that is uh, not part of their belief system, but you can figure out what it really means as opposed to the nonsense interpretation that they're putting on it. And right. then that will move you further into the storyline and find out what the the real source of the uh, supernatural emergency is so you can uh, make fun of the conspiracy theorists uh, and then still have your snow and eat it too, provided it's not yellow snow, have your snow and burn it too, I guess, technically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when we've eaten and burned all our snow, Robin, I, I guess we're done, right? We're, we don't have to shovel. That's the good news. The snow's all been eaten and burned. So we're done. Right. Right. Well, I'm going to uh, go out and uh, stand on my deck and be happy that I'm not shoveling, uh, but we'll be back a week from now with uh, more Ken and Robin nonsense. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pellegrin Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from the cockatrice of underfunding by joining beloved backers... Daniel Gill. Drew Clary. Ernest Muller. Garrett Fitzgerald. And Hyperlexic. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. A rhinoceros, a cockatrice, and a turnip-headed wyvern walk into a forest in our latest design, Normal Times. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>